Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang. When we think about the fundamental mysteries of the universe, like why are we here? Is there a creator? What's the deal with the Big Bang? Is there life on other planets? When we're pondering this stuff, we often overlook a huge one, which is the mystery of consciousness. Now, consciousness, I'm well aware of this, is one of those funny words that can sound off-puttingly highfalutin, like the mind or the cosmos, but it's actually endlessly fascinating. Put extremely simply, here's the deal with the mystery of consciousness. How did we on this planet and maybe on other planets that we haven't discovered yet, how do we go from piles of rocks and you know, swirling bodies of gas to being able to sing opera and design iPhones. In other words, how do we go from non-conscious matter to taking this unfathomable leap to becoming conscious, to having the lights turned on? This is not, I hasten to add, a academic exercise. Probing this mystery of consciousness does two things that really can boost your well-being and happiness. First, it, it can provoke a sense of awe. Studies show that provoking awe can have all sorts of psychological benefits, including giving us a huge dose of perspective about our tiny place in the universe. Uh, And second, using simple meditation techniques, we can actually bump directly up against the mystery of consciousness in ways that, as you're about to hear from our guest this week, are both exhilarating and deeply meaningful. So our guest is Annika Harris. We're not related, by the way, but we are longtime friends. And Annika has written an excellent new book about this subject. It's a slim, crisp, compelling volume called Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind. And I promise you, if you you read just the first three pages, you will, I strongly suspect, see that she has this uncanny ability to succinctly produce awe and wonder for the reader. This is not her first book, by the way. She's also the author of a children's book called I Wonder, which my wife and I read to our son. Uh, she's a, She was a collaborator on, a, on the Mindful Games activity cards, which were put out by Susan Kaiser Greenland. Uh, those are designed to teach mindfulness and meditation to children. Susan and Annika actually were on this show back in episode 121. So if you want to hear more about Meditation for Kids, you can go back and and check that out. I should say one other thing about Annika while I'm talking about her CV. She's also a highly regarded editor and consultant to science writers. Not for nothing, she's a a longtime meditator as well. One very quick related and and very much related item of business before we dive in. During this episode, Annika and I talk about a specific meditation practice by our mutual friend Joseph Goldstein – Uh, That practice is designed to get at the mystery of consciousness, and the practice is actually available in the 10% Happier app, and it is titled Turbocharge Your Meditation, and it can be found in the Advanced and Unguided section of the Singles tab, or you can click directly on the link in the show notes of this podcast, and you'll go right there. Okay, enough for me. Here is Annika Harris. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. I always ask the same question. How did you get interested in meditation? Uh, There are kind of many answers I could give, actually. Um, Give them all. Okay. Um, I've 
always been very interested and curious about consciousness, which is obviously what my book is about. Um, let's see. I, I originally, like formally, was introduced to meditation. I think we spoke about this actually in our, in our last interview. Um, in a yoga class, I was a professional dancer um, a couple of careers ago, um, 20-something years ago now. And I had an injury, and, and I, part of my physical therapy was to go to yoga. And this was where I actually, you know, someone was teaching me how to meditate. And it was the first time I actually got instruction. Um, but as a child, I had very severe migraines that started when I was eight years old. Um, and they didn't have the kinds of medications they have now. Um, so there were times when I would be... Um, completely incapacitated. Like every time I moved even an inch, it was incredibly painful. Um, so I'd just be, you know, for hours at a time, just lying in one position, just trying to get through it. Um, and I realized that I just, I tried different tricks of things to think about. And, you know, you just, you try to come up with coping mechanisms when you're in a situation like that. And um, I, Suddenly, just I actually don't know why exactly, but I got interested in what was so horrible about what I was experiencing. Mm. And I just that was like the first moment in my life where I realized that curiosity can be an antidote um, to a lot of suffering. And and I really just I, I think I it's like the classic feeling that you understand as an adult when you study meditation or you, or you study these things that resisting the negative feeling or the negative emotion just contributes to the pain you're experiencing. Um, and I think I was getting that um, just at a fundamental level with this migraine pain, um, that it was worse to be having, to have my internal experience be, I can't do this, I can't take this, this is what, you know, to just have this. I mean, and I don't know that it was in those words, but just to be feeling like, I, I need this to go away. I can't. I can't do this. It's, you know, it's kind of the best the best words I could give to it. Um, so I just there was one day I f just flipped it, um, and I and I just wanted to see like what what is this feeling? Why why is it so intolerable? And but really more like what is it and where is it? And I realized I couldn't even quite pinpoint it in my head, and um, I, I just spent a lot of time trying to figure out and of course this is getting into consciousness like it really it just started to trip me out that I was having an experience at all um, and that it was hard to even these things that I thought I knew so well like headache and pain and thoughts that when you look at them closely you get kind of a different perspective and they're mysterious when you say that I was having an experience at all you're talking mm. about consciousness there yes what I think consciousness is like one of those words like the mind or the cosmos <laughs> yeah, where people we throw it we out. We need a new word. I remember walking down this – back when I was in my brief uh, uh, flirtation with Deepak Chopra. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think this is, uh, um, this is way, way in the past before I started meditating. I remember I was, I was interviewing him and – or I was – I think he and I were taking a walk or something like that before mm. or after an interview. And he kept talking about consciousness. And mm. I was like, what, what, what is it? Say that word. <laughs> what do you mean? And he said a lot of stuff. I didn't understand any of it. <laughs> when I read your book, I do understand it. Well, yeah. So I give a definition really early on. And I think people do use the word in many ways and it's confusing. And I actually like the word experience. I think it's a little bit cleaner. 
Um, people use people use different words, awareness, but I think awareness has a few different meanings also. Um, but the way I describe it in my book, I, I basically use um, to, the philosopher Thomas Nagel uh, wrote a famous essay called "What Is It Like to Be a Bat?" Um, about consciousness in the seventies. And he describes consciousness, I think, very clearly, or at least what what I that what I'm talking about in the book, what I mean by consciousness, and what what people mean by consciousness when they're talking about it being a, an absolute mystery. Um, and that is the way Nagel describes it: is um, a an organism is conscious if there is something that it is like to be that organism. And so, if it's having an experience, if there's something it's like from the inside. Um, then that is consciousness, and that is that is what I'm talking about in my book, and that's how I use the word. Um, but I do think it is interchangeable with experience, and in some ways, experience describes it better. Um, I was going to say that something the lights else. are on at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you talk about it in the book, how did we go from rocks mm-hmm. to singing opera? Mm-hmm. You know, how did we go from non-conscious matter? Yes. To all this, having these very rich experiences uh, at our level as Homo sapiens, but yeah. at varying levels throughout the the animal world. Yeah. Well, and I think this mystery really fully came into view the moment that science advanced to the point where we realized we are all made of the same things. Right? There's not, um, you know, living systems and stars and you know, we're all made of the same particles and we literally are stardust. And so once you realize, okay, all of these particles and atoms are what we assume are non-conscious matter swirling around the universe, at some point the matter gets configured in such a way that, that the matter itself begins to entail an experience of being that matter. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's really the mystery. And I, I was actually, I was going to point out because for some people, um, I'm not quite sure why, but for some people, that definition of Nagel's, that phrasing what it is like, there's something that it is like, um, some people get hung up on that and can't quite get their minds around it. Um, many people actually. And so I like to, um, I'll, I'll take someone through the following exercise to help them get what I mean by that and what I think he meant by that. Um, and it's just with a, a couple of simple questions. So if I ask you, you know, is there something that it's like to be you right now? Are you having an experience right now? And I see you nodding your head already. Yes. The answer, of course, is yes. Um, and then I say, you know, is there something that it's like to be your shoe? Um, and of course, <laughs> our answer is no. And even if in some crazy universe, the shoe is conscious, it, it actually doesn't matter. It's The point is, um, the difference that you just noticed, I'm having an experience. There's something right here in this point in time and space that is an experience um, that I don't believe is happening in my at the level of my shoe um, or in this table. Um, that difference, just distinguishing between whether there's, there's an experience or not, that that is consciousness. I just it blow a lot here blows my <clears throat> mind, but um, and we'll go macro in a second. But micro mm-hmm. that you were a kid that was interested in this at all. But we're very different types of kids, clearly, because <laughs> I was interested in stuff that I can't even say <laughs> here in this context. So what what was going on with it's you? Not that, the only thing I was interested I, in. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I dance, played with clearly. Barbies. And- <laughs> yeah. um, but but this was in 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 your wheelhouse somewhere. Yes, I mean I think some. 
some children are definitely more inclined to think about these deep questions than others. I think pain often um, pushes people, especially children, to think about these things. Um, but many more children than I realized actually do naturally think about these things. And it's how I got interested in teaching meditation to children. Yeah, no, I, I, I th- clearly something about those migraines as as massively unpleasant as they appear to have been, there was something powerful in the, in there psychologically. Yeah, and I, but I do think children. It's interesting working. I teach meditation to children. You know, I guess your listeners know that. Um, they always blow me away, and even having had the experiences I had as a child. I'm always surprised at how many kids have already thought about this stuff or are incredibly open to it. There, I do believe that it's much easier to teach children to meditate than adults overall. I was just realizing we both have kids the same age, and they they do ask these wild questions about, I'm, I'm sure, as, as funny as Alexander is, I'm sure he also has his deep moments. <laughs> where he... Yes, we were talking before we started recording about some of the jokes my son tells or, or like little insults he, he delivers very, very well. Um, yeah, he's really interested in death. Mm, right. Yeah. They, I feel like kids, kids can get very deep and they have very interesting ideas and thoughts about, um, you know, what, how the universe is structured and what, what we're experiencing and, and the whole range. Well, to- total non. Well, I mean, it's it's this is not a non sequitur mm-hmm. uh, based on what we've just been discussing, but it's not m- maybe not super relevant to the reason why you you walked in this room to do this recording. But this okay. is right here. Um, you've written a, you wrote this children's book called I Wonder, yes. which we read to our son. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, and I read it as a sort of. An agnostic's guide to answering the big question mm. for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder, what do you say to your children mm. when they ask, because you have two daughters, what do you say when, when they ask about death, for example? Mm. I'll, I'll tell you what I say. I want to mm-hmm. run it by you. Mm-hmm. Um, I say, I don't know. It's a yeah. mystery. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I think um, – I mean, that's that's what my children's book is about. It's called I Wonder, but actually the original title was I Don't Know, which is a much worse title, but <laughs> is what the point of it was, was um, let's teach children that it's not only okay to say I don't know, it's wonderful. It's a source of curiosity and awe and wonder. Um, and yeah, I mean, a- as I said, I think curiosity, it's it's very powerful and um, I think we can't encourage it enough in our kids. I mean, that's that's what it's about. It's about um, encouraging curiosity in, in children and saying, I don't know when you don't know, as a wonderful starting point to learning more and and even just sitting in that experience of not knowing. Um, and there's, I think there's a lot to be said in a meditation context to the power the, to be a bit grandiose, kind of the mm. healing power of not knowing. Yeah. So I want to I want to get to the overlap between the mystery of consciousness and meditation in a second. Well, mm-hmm. let me just because we were talking about your meditation career, let's just kind of close that out mm. and then get into okay. that stuff. Mm-hmm. The um, so I, I I know you talked about your experience with migraines as a, a little girl, and then having learned it formally in in a yoga context mm-hmm. later on. Where did it go from there? Because I, I yeah. as, as far as I understand, you've you've done retreats, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, 
there's also just a little piece missing, um, which is just after I had that first experience with the migraine, um, I started applying that process to a lot of things in my life. Um, and I, I struggled with various things as a child. Um, but I started just applying that method when either I was I was dreading something or fearing something that was coming up, I would um, just get more curious about what it was. And then eventually, in the moment of whatever the thing was that was uncomfortable for me, I would I noticed that if I just kind of took it one moment at a time, it was much easier to handle um, than kind of being overwhelmed by the whole thing. Right. There's so that, when, yeah. There's that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's okay. Um, I'm just amplifying your point. There, there's a kind of cheesy expression that I, I, I find it coming up in my mind every now and again. Um, inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's incredibly hard. Yeah, I didn't. I've never heard that, but yeah, yeah. Um, and then when I encountered meditation as a formal practice, that connection was immediate for me, and I realized. I mean, it was just. It was such. Um, it was such a relief. I was so happy to find something like systematic that I could practice that, um, you know, that I could kind of do with that discovery. So, yeah, so it was in yoga. I also, I was a professional dancer um, and I studied dance at NYU. Um, So I danced seriously for many years. And what I realized later once I got in, once I was seriously studying meditation that that had been also a kind of training and more in concentration, but that was really a meditation practice um, in itself. I think dance classes and training and everything that you're learning, I mean, like like any sport, I think, any um, athletic ability, if you're not incredibly present and following each moment after the next, um, you'll fall. You you won't be able to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. So I think there was some training there already. Um, but then shortly after that injury and I started taking yoga classes, I met my husband, Sam. Um, and he had really seriously studied already by the time I met him. And so it was a very the natural path for me to um, – start following some of the teachers that he introduced me to and to learn, you know, just by osmosis, everything he had learned. And I I immediately started um, practicing regularly and learning from teachers and sitting retreats. And what kind of effect did it have on your life? um, It had a very profound effect. I, you know, it I'm trying to think. I'm trying to separate it into pre and post retreat. I I, I do feel like um, there was something about that first retreat that I felt like was re- truly life transforming. I just started to see my mind and consciousness in a completely different way that that stayed with me in my day to day life, um, and that hadn't happened for me yet. I I before that I felt that uh, I mean at that point I was probably meditating at least 45 minutes a day, um, feeling like it had this tremendous effect while I was doing it and for maybe some period of time after, and that it was useful for things like anxiety um, and and pain. I mean, I, I, still, I still have migraines now. Um, but it wasn't until after the retreat. I, I felt like I had some insights about 
um, both the nature of consciousness and also some illusions that we walk around with that I that I talk about in my book. And um, this actually kind of leads into um, my my lifelong fascination with consciousness and uh, why meditation I think was such, always such an interesting activity. <laughs> it's not usually called an activity, but um, it. Fair enough. Yeah. And it's a way to, you talk about this in the book and quite beautifully, it's a way to bump up against this fascinating fundamental mystery right. that takes it out of the abstract or abstruse or whatever. It right. makes it really relevant. Right. right. And I think that was always my starting point. I think I, I noticed all of these benefits and it kind of came to me as a coping mechanism. Um, and in some ways it, it is still that, but first and foremost, it has always been for me just a very interesting exercise. It's it's a way, um, Sam and I sometimes talk about it as, as like running a scientific experiment you know, of your own mind. And it does, it does feel that way. There's something that feels very scientific about it. Um, and there are definitely experiences of noticing that things we experience, like um, the sense of being a self or the sense of having conscious will, these things can drop away um, and you kind of have a, a better a better sense of the some of the false illusions that that we walk around with in our daily lives. Can we go deep on this? Okay. This seems this seems <laughs> uh, center of the bullseye for for me and okay. for the folks who listen to this yeah. podcast. So exactly how does that work? Let's start with the mm. sense of having a self, mm-hmm. which is in and of itself a mind. Mm-hmm. boggling, mind-expanding yeah. thing to contemplate. Yeah. How does meditation get at that? Um, well, so it, it's a, obviously a very, very strong illusion. And even those of us who have had experiences of it, of it suspending for some period of time, it's basically always here. I mean, it, it's, it's um, analogous to a visual illusion that you, you literally can't break out of, right? If you're looking at a, 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 a realistic enough two-dimensional image of a cube, you can't not see a three-dimensional cube, even though you might know that it's a two-dimensional surface you're looking at. So so we walk around with this very strong um, sense that we are these selves. Um, but just like many other things, when you look very closely at them, they start to break apart. And actually, I love to quote Galen Strassen, the philosopher Galen Strassen, um, who says, what you do follows from what you are. And I like it just because it's brief and it kind of encapsulates, like, we all know that our behavior, the language that we speak, the feelings, we know that all of this is a result of brain processing. And we know there's no single self in the brain somewhere that is the center of all of it or that's responsible for all of it. And so, I mean, just just in terms of the science that we now have and know, um, and neuroscience is very far from from understanding a lot about the brain, but we can we we know that the experience we're having of being we I mean our experience is really of being something separate from our brains, um, and we can and I think in in response to this idea that you know what you do follows from what you are, we think okay well our brain does all this processing and you know might you know be pushing me to go get that second serving of ice cream, but then I, I (laughs) make this decision. I, separate from my brain, out, you know, floating out in the world, 
then I make this kind of free will choice. And free will and self are, are very intertwined. They're very much the same intuition and the same feeling. Um, but that can't be the case. Um, it's all brain processing. And we now also um, understand that consciousness, at least the, the conscious experience that, that we have, the type of contra- conscious experience we're having right now as human minds with human brains, that most of that processing is subconscious. Um, and so even the point at which we feel like we've made a decision, there are many things that have happened at the level of the brain to get us to have that feeling. I don't know if that was clear. I don't think there's any lack of clarity in what you're saying. It's just that for regular people, and I count myself as a regular person, this is just hard to wrap your head yes. around. Yes, okay, so right. So then you jump from what we know to actually dropping the illusion itself. And this is, is something that can be done that many people have had the experience of um, all of this new um, research on psychedelics for treatment-resistant depression, and it's very interesting work. And I talk about some of it in my book, um, mostly because it acts on the same part of the brain, which is called the default mode network, um, that meditation acts on. And it, it's, um, you know, we, we guess that that is why this dropping of the illusion of self happens under both circumstances. Um, yes, it's, it is a very, very strong illusion. And even for me, who breaks through it pretty regularly, um, it's still hard for me to get my mind around. I mean, it's endlessly fascinating to me. But the truth of what we understand scientifically and just logically, I think, um, for most people or for many people, um, we shaking the illusion is a completely different thing. Most people have not had that experience. So but how, it's possible to have that experience. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So how do you do it in meditation? How do you do yeah. it in meditation? Um, <laughs> it just started happening for me before I even knew it was a phenomenon. Um, I think, and I think that's probably how it happens for most people is you just spend enough time in meditation. It's just, um, a type of insight that you become aware of. There's, I'm sorry, there's so many places I could go with this. I'm not sure. Well, one way that comes to mind for me, and I've talked about it on the show before, uh, uh, it's been taught. By Dzogchen masters. That's what for, I was going to okay, say. Okay, so yeah. you want to talk about that? Yeah, that is the traditional Dzogchen practice, and it's it's many, um, many different tools for being able to to drop that illusion of self. Um, and actually, Diana Winston has a new book out that is on that is just practices that are Dzogchen practices, complete in a uh, sorry taught in a completely secular way. So she was um, sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now oh, yeah? two days ago. Talking about her book? Yes. Oh, so okay. Th- that stuff will be out there. But let me give you one example. Yes. And I know you'll be comfortable with this because you put it on the internet. Um, our mutual friend, Joseph Goldstein, has a uh, ha- has you know gazillion little practices that are incredibly useful. But there's one that yeah. goes right at this, mm-hmm. which is – and this is kind of derived from Dzogchen, which is yeah. a school of Tibetan uh, meditation yeah. – um, and that's Joseph studied in, um, mm-hmm. where he says, just close your eyes and listen to all the sounds you're hearing. And then ask yourself, who what is, is knowing? Oh. Yeah. Or who is listening? Yeah. What or what who? What is listening? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so can, can you riff on that for a second? 
Um, you, you, by the way, put you took some of his practices and put them. I don't know if they're still up there, but he had this like yeah, kind of jokey nine minute. Yeah. Oh n- no, I might be thinking of something else. He wrote a lovely article called um, I'm forgetting the name of it. No something, no self. Well, he also did a nine minute. Joke, semi-jokingly sort of a nine-minute turbocharged path to enlightenment for busy people with a set of three practice, three three-minute practices. So I didn't know he recorded this. Oh, yes, no, I did. I'm sorry. he wrote it and you put it on – you put the actual – I don't know if it's still up okay, anywhere. Yes. No, he wrote it, it he, he wrote it as an article that yes. I put on my website and it's still there. Um, and yes, it's a it's meditation practice for, for busy people. And But it is, it is specifically um, – the intention is to drop – the illusion of self. Yes. Um, so yes. Yeah, so that so there so there are those practices. Those. It's interesting. I came about it in from such a different angle that um, some of those Dzogchen practices, and I, f- I forget. There's a there's a term for that category of practice. Glimpse, glimpse practices, right? That sounds right. Because yeah, you are totally. glimpsing. You know what? If, if that isn't the name, it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the name. And that's the name Diana uses in her book. So, yes, once I had kind of already hit on this experience of dropping that illusion, um, many of the glimpse practices are very helpful for me um, for just kind of getting there immediately. Some of them, it's interesting, some of them don't work for me and actually are counterproductive. Mm. And I've noticed that a lot of people have the same issue. And it's often in the description uh, that you just gave of looking for the looker, looking for the seer, looking. And there's some so, – so there's what I always offer to people when that doesn't feel right to them or when that doesn't feel helpful um, is the Douglas Harding method of not having a head. I can't remember if you and I have talked about this or not, but that that's the one thing that that's the strongest practice for me um, and brings me almost immediately to the place that I had kind of discovered on my own after hours of meditating. Douglas Harding wrote us, I guess, what you could refer to as a kind of a spiritual classic, a thin volume mm-hmm. kind of like yours, mm-hmm. uh, called On Having no head, yes, which was initially recommended to me by your husband uh-huh. and also by Joseph Goldstein. We should say that Joseph and your husband are old, old friends. Yeah, um, and it's a, it is, it is a mind blowing book, kind of literally. Yeah. Uh, so what it, does that it, work for you? I'm curious. It does. Yeah. But I, and I want you to describe what the practice okay. is. If yeah. You, if you're up for it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's very simple. You you really just imagine that you don't have a head. I mean, in, within the context of, of meditating. I mean, you once you. Once you get the hang of it, you could really do it at any moment in your daily life. But um, the practice is, is most effective if you're sitting in meditation and you're listening to sounds and feeling your breath or whatever your focus is in the moment. Um, and then you just imagine that you don't have a head in that context. Um, and I haven't actually thought a lot about why it works so well, but I think it removes – the place where you think yourself is. Mm. <laughs> Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. And since it wasn't there to begin with, it just gives you this window onto a clear picture of reality. And so, I mean, I, that's the first time I've said that I, I, or thought about it. Um, but yes, that practice has always been very powerful for me and works very well. And 
I always offer that to people who um, don't feel that the the kind of looking for the looker or looking for the seer practice works. And I I do know why I have my um, have my theory for why it doesn't work for me and for a lot of people. And my imagination is activated by it. And so even if I, I can obviously I get the point and I can get there eventually. But the first thing that happens in my mind is I see a picture of myself, which is kind of the opposite of what you want to be doing with your attention. So but it falls apart under scrutiny. So I mean, for yes. me, you, I, um, the way Sam sometimes describes these practices is, is like it's right there as soon as you start looking, the, the answer, which is no answer at all. Mm-hmm. But I actually find that you can do a little bit of discursive or directed thought contemplation that is quite yes. healthy. Like So if if you're looking for what's hearing, yeah, you might picture yourself. Yeah. But then you can say, OK, well, but is – is that really hearing? But that's the thing. So, yes, and I think they're very useful, and I think people should stick with them anyway. But for me, it's a multi-stage process. The certain glimpse practices, um, if they if they conjure up an image for you or if you intuitively feel like you have an answer, well, yes, the hearer is right. I know exactly where the hearer is. It's right here. You know. And some people do have that initial reaction then there, then you take more steps, and yes, then it's this exercise of curiosity where you eventually get there. But I, I like the powerful glimpse practices that get you there immediately. Yeah. Two things to say: one, mm-hmm. small; the other, larger. The small thing is just we've invoked the name Sam a couple times. Sam mm-hmm. Harris, your husband, uh, wrote a book with it where he gets deep into these practices yes. called Waking Up, yeah. which is the name of the app that uh, he has. And now I should say you have because you have meditations for children on there. It's called yes. the Waking Up mm-hmm. uh, app or course. Yes. Um, great, great, great stuff. And I love that book so much. I've mm-hmm. read it many, many times. Mm-hmm. So that's just a detail to drop. Yeah. The The larger thing I wanted to say when you put your finger on this, so I want to mm-hmm. – I want to say what I would say in response to what you said and, and see if you think I'm getting it right, mm-hmm. which is that for some people, they struggle. You know, they, they might be it might be frustrating for some listeners to hear us talk with such enthusiasm about these practices, because mm-hmm. often a person uh, can try these and, and get no quote unquote results. And mm-hmm. it feels frustrating and mm-hmm. like an experience they don't have access to. Mm-hmm. But in my in my experience, you actually have to do it a bunch mm. and do it lightly. Mm-hmm. You know, not like you've got to grit your teeth, got to f- feel what it's like to have no self. Because, of course, that desire yeah. to feel a certain thing is <laughs> going to stop you from feeling the thing. Yeah, right? it so often you, does. You yeah. got, I mean, for I do this practice of looking for what's knowing or looking mm-hmm. for what's hearing all the time. And mm-hmm. it doesn't, quote unquote, work yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of a gentle thing I play with over time. Yeah. And when every once in a while, it does kind of bump you up against this fundamental, just this, I've used this term before, this kind of vertiginous feeling of like, yeah. oh, wow, there's nobody home. <laughs> I, I, I know that I'm knowing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I'm hearing your voice right now. Yeah. But I can't find what is hearing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And... The sense of self is just another thing that's appearing mm. in consciousness. Yeah. And so am I Am I giving, yes. uh, you think, correct instruction here to folks? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you just said is exactly what Diana Winston would say. And she – this is why I love this book so much. Um, we, should call it, we should call it out. It's called The Little Book of Being. Being, yes. The Little Book of Being. Yes. Yeah, and it's wonderful. Um, and that's exactly how she suggests that people use it. And she also suggests that – you try different practices and certain ones will resonate and others won't. And 
yeah, she's she's very um, easygoing in her approach, and I I really I do think that's the most effective way to go about it. Um, and yeah, it's all it's all little experiments. So she gives you many different ways and methods by which you can try to introduce these concepts um, w- without a lot of pressure and just to see you know as an experiment, see what happens. And try what it. what's the benefit? Hmm. To you, um, yeah. So. It's funny. I'm just remembering something Sam said that I realized he said in an event with you, which was, I think I'm getting this right. I think he said, um, I would meditate even if it were a little bit bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm definitely um, I'm of the same mindset. And I think it's partly because of how um, I was introduced to it and also just because of my other interests. Um, For me, it's. It's interesting to me that you even ask the question because the my first response is, it's so interesting <laughs> um, that that's a benefit in and of itself. Um, but I, so I think there are other benefits to that. I think I mean so many of them you talk about all the time on your podcast, um, and we now have so much more science um, that that uh, confirms so much of what we experience, which is that. A lot of our emotional suffering is caused by our this illusion of being a self, and so it, it actually can help you cut through or manage better um, a lot of uncomfortable or unhealthy emotions um, and behaviors that you have in your life. One of the ways <clears throat> that the aforementioned Joseph Goldstein talks about it is in dealing with powerful emotions. You can move from I am mm. to there is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the difference between I am angry mm-hmm. and how the sense of self in the face of anger, that this is my bespoke mm-hmm. anger, mm-hmm. Uh, can f- force you to re-up the anger sort of indefinitely. Yeah. As opposed to there is anger. This is this impersonal phenomenon rolling through. Yeah. And can I examine it from a standpoint of curiosity? Kind of, not kind of, exactly like you did with migraine pain mm-hmm. at age eight. Yeah. Can, that can change your whole relationship with the thing. Yeah. Well, and it also naturally brings in compassion, which it took me a while to understand this, actually. I was, I was intrigued by it when I first started my formal meditation practice. And actually, I think it was on my first retreat. Um, I felt depths of compassion that I'd never experienced before in my life. And I had heard it talked about so much. I came off of that first retreat thinking, why is it that this concentration practice naturally brings up compassion? Why are those two things connected? But I think what you just said um, is basically what where I arrived at. Um, it's a very different starting point, a very different way of looking at yourself and others. Um, without the self, there's just a lot more room for, for compassion. More 10% happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people 
with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. You, and we talked about this at the beginning, define the mystery of consciousness as how does unconscious matter go from from being unconscious to being conscious. Mm-hmm. How do the lights go on right. from, a, from a rock to us? Yeah. So that's one way to think about the mystery of consciousness. It's also sometimes talked about as, and this is the way Joseph and other meditation teachers, mm-hmm. if memory serves, talk about it, which is the mystery is I know that I am knowing stuff. I know that there's visual data coming in right now for me that includes you nodding your head and mm-hmm. includes the sound of my own voice and includes uh, the feeling of my tush on a chair or whatever. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm aware of this stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't know of what's aware. You know, mm-hmm, I, I can't mm-hmm, find mm-hmm. the knower. Right. Um, are, is, are those two different questions or are they related? I'm not sure. I mean, so I, I so at, at a very fundamental level, there is consciousness and there are the contents of consciousness. And that's the more accurate way to talk about it when you're when you're able to drop um, the idea or the illusion of self, so there's knowing and what is known. I guess I actually I don't love the word knowing because I feel like it invokes um, complex thought, mm. and I think experience and consciousness. You absolutely. I mean, we we know that you can have an experience of something without having thoughts or complex. Um, yeah, complex thoughts in general. I watch um, my cats do this all the time. Right. Or, I mean, even, you know, an infants or some people think infants aren't conscious, but <laughs> that's another it's another thing. But, you know, as young as you want to go, a one-year-old baby, um, they're clearly not having an experience anything like the experience you and I are having right now. Um, I'm not sure you would say a, a one-year-old knows anything. I mean, I guess there's certain things you knows the sound of its mother's voice. You know, you, there are things you could you could say it knows, and of course, it's learning a lot at that point. But you can have an experience, a very very minimal experience, um, without the usual sense of knowing something. Mm-hmm. And I think in the in the Buddhist sense, that's what know that's what they mean by knowing. But I feel like it's a little comp- um, confusing in a using it in a Western context because we mean something different by right. knowing. I, I think this kind of <clears> – <throat> I'm going to use a term but not in the pejorative, pejorative, but this kind of persnickety about 
language, mm-hmm. this precision around language, mm-hmm. which is very common in Buddhist circles, is actually useful. Mm-hmm. So when I say mm-hmm. I know that I know stuff, mm-hmm. I don't mean like knowing in the, you know, I know Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's more like I know, I'm, I'm simply aware yeah. that I'm seeing something right now, yeah. but I can't find the knower. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. Well, but I think there's even a level deeper. You you know that you're seeing something, but there's there's a possibility that there's an experience of just seeing without knowing that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Because you, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this and and the argument is that in deep states of meditation, you can start to pick these apart. Yes. Right. Well, all of the all of which is in service of uprooting the sense of self, which of course is per the Buddhists the wellspring of all of our suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because then you've got something, this this thing that's not a thing at all, the self that you need to build up and defend, and all all of this other stuff, which is causes not only our own suffering but other people's suffering. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then I mean, once you start contemplating all of this and having ex- long experiences of extended meditation practice, um, you start. Consciousness can become even more mysterious in terms of a phenomenon in the world, and at least it, it did for me. Um, and you realize that there are some intuitions that are misleading us in terms of what we think consciousness is, and that's the main goal of my new book is really that. It's really to shake up our intuitions about what consciousness is. And for me, the the primary goal the primary goal of that um, is to help us gain a deeper understanding if that's possible. I mean, some people think we, our brains are just not, um, they're, they're not able to understand this mystery. And I'm a little more optimistic than that. I think it's possible. And I think um, this is true in any area of knowledge or scientific breakthrough that um, it seems that in order to get a more fundamental understanding of um, the nature of reality, it almost always requires that we break through some intuition that's, that's misleading us. Um, even intuitions that might be useful in our daily lives, they're, so they're not necessarily illusions, although I think we have, we have some, some false intuitions also that are leading us in the wrong direction with consciousness. But you know, everything from understanding that the earth is a sphere um, and not flat, as it seems to us to be, um, to... Atoms. Yeah, exactly. Atoms and anything microscopic or the germ theory of disease. It took a long time for people to accept that because it's so counterintuitive. Um, yeah, the fact that, that matter is made up of mostly empty space. I mean, that there couldn't be anything more counterintuitive than that, right? Well, all we see is solid matter around us, but it turns out that at a fundamental level, that's not the way the universe is structured. And um, there are always these periods of time, sometimes very long periods of time, before the information that we've that we've gotten to, or the the, the scientific understanding that we've reached, um, we we have this period where we go back and forth and check it against our intuitions. And the moment we say, well, "No, no, no, that that can't be. That can't. We must we must have this wrong somehow." Um, there's some period of time before we're able to recognize that yes, this actually is the way the universe is structured, and we have to let go of this intuition that's that's misleading us. And I think we're in a place like that in terms of consciousness. And so I think um, if it's possible for us to understand it better, 
it's going to require that we really shake shake free some some intuitions. It's interesting to read your book because you clearly, in terms of your own motivation, evolved from just sheer curiosity that you've had, that appears to be long standing for yeah. you, to a desire to help, as you say, shake up our intuitions around mm-hmm. what's known as the hard problem of consciousness. Because yes. It's hard to understand, solve, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can actually get a little more into that if you want to, uh, to, to describe why the hard problem is called the hard problem. Yes, but um, let me yes. let me just finish this the 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 because I do want you to talk about that. Um, but it's very interesting to note to see how your your motivation went from just like wow, this is I'm kind of obsessed with this subject to maybe I can do something that will help us solve the hard problem by shaking up our intuitions because it's from that state of not knowing, yeah. which we've been talking about, yeah. um, Out of it's out of that state that we often uh, evolve toward a real knowing. I mean, look, yeah. the Zen folks talk about uh, beginner's mind. That's um, yeah. uh, the, the not knowing can be very, very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, having said that, um, you dive into I was also, the hard that problem. Did, that did just remind me, though, that um, – the book came about for that reason. So I actually, so um, I've, I've been working with neuroscientists for about 12 years. Um, and I've been thinking about this stuff my whole life, but started to really um, to do more research and to try to figure out, you know, to understand everything I could possibly understand. And so this topic kept coming up more and more in conversations with friends. And I realized that I wasn't the only one. <laughs> who was interested in this topic. And so I actually just started writing my ideas down. I kind of wanted to work through my own, my own ideas. And I'd come across this, um, this category of theories that postulates that consciousness could be a more fundamental feature of the universe. And this is under the unfortunate term of panpsychism, which I think (laughs) for obvious reasons is not the, the best term. Um, it's something that I completely discounted the first time I came across it, but the more I thought about it, the more these ideas um, seemed interesting to me and worth exploring at the very least. Um, the idea of panpsychism oh. is, as I understand it just from reading your writing, is that everything has consciousness. Yes. So with this chair I'm sitting in, or my shoe to use another <laughs> object that was invoked earlier, actually does have some consciousness. Well, we we don't know, and these are. But this is the theory. The, the, yeah, the theory, and and I actually say in my book that the more I've thought about it, so the book. Oh, so what I was saying is the book itself became at, at first my writing was just a way for me to work through my own thoughts because I couldn't quite believe myself that I was being convinced by this line of thinking, and so I just started writing for myself, and then I knew I had some friends who were interested in the topic, and I was sharing it with them, and it was just kind of a thing we were intellectual game we were doing for fun and a few of them said you know you should you should build this out and you know um submit it as an article to scientific american or or something like that and anyway the more i worked on it the more built out it got it actually turned it turned into this book so it actually once i got deeper into the process of writing and interviewing scientists um and once i started seriously contemplating this this type of theory myself that possibly consciousness is a more fundamental feature of the universe. Um, I actually sent what I'd been writing to about 10 scientists who I thought would give me the harshest criticism. And I was a little bit worried about expressing these thoughts publicly. And I wanted to get 
I wanted to get a bit of a reality check on like how crazy are these ideas and if I do publish them, how much criticism will I get on the other side of publication? And what really surprised me was that most of the scientists that I went out to, and these are well-respected mainstream scientists, um, were were open to these ideas, had thought about them already. Some of them kind of came to theories like this on their own without even really knowing about panpsychism. Um, None of them were willing to admit this publicly or to talk about it publicly. Um, there, and there are some scientists who, who I talk about in my book who are and who, who are doing some interesting work. Um, but the ones who I figured would deliver the harshest criticism were actually very grateful that I was writing about this because they do think there's something interesting there. And so um, part of my, my, my goal kind of shifted from just wanting to share this mystery with everyone to really hoping um, that I could help make the topic less taboo. Um, because if we are ever going to um, make any progress on the hard problem, it will it, it it has to be that scientists can can think about it and discuss it publicly. So, well, how would panpsychism work? I mean, this mm. microphone that's in front of me right now is actually conscious, is making judgments about the tone of my voice. <laughs> how right? Well, how would this work? So. Um, first of all, it's very important to distinguish consciousness from complex thought again. So um, our brains are a very particular configuration of matter, right? There's a lot of very complex processing. I mean, our brains are the most complex, complicated thing we know of in the universe. So what it's like to be brain processing, um, we would never expect. If some version of panpsychism is correct, we would never expect a microphone to have any kind of experience like ours, to have a mind, to have thoughts, to have intentions. None of that would be would exist. Um, and, and in fact, I think our experience of being a self and all of the complicated thoughts and things we can think about, if consciousness is pervasive, that would be a very, very rare form of consciousness. So um, if there's actually something it's like to be an atom or an individual cell or you know, some collection of cells or the material that make up this table in front of us. Um, it It's not, it's in no way um, a unified mind, like I said, with thoughts and intentions. So I sometimes joke that, you know, we wouldn't expect a rock to write a novel or to get up and start dancing. And so we wouldn't expect it. We wouldn't expect it to behave the way that humans behave. And we wouldn't expect it to feel anything like, um, the way a human mind feels, um, especially as an integrated thing. I mean, a, a rock is not a, a, a real s- integrated system of any kind. You can break it apart and it's still a rock. Right. Uh, but so it's not like Toy Story where we leave the room and the toys to have these complex lives <laughs> and rivalries, et cetera, et cetera. No, although it does. I mean, and these are questions that come up all the time now in the age of AI and our quickly developing artificial technologies. Yes, artificial intelligence. Um what would constitute the type of processing that's similar enough to a human brain that if everything, if there is some level of consciousness in all matter, if it's a property of matter, um, then yes, will will the things we create that are close enough to human beings, will there be, will that entail an experience like being a human being? And, you know, do we have ethical obligations and all of these interesting questions? Let me just get back to a question I was answering before because I don't know if we ran it to ground. That 
maybe there are mysteries of consciousness because you talk about the mystery of consciousness as being, you know, how did we go from mm-hmm. unconscious matter to to the lights being on? Mm-hmm. And I was saying, well, the, some meditation teachers talk about it as like I, um, I or one knows that one knows something in the technical sense of knowing, mm-hmm. but there is no knower. Are, are those I, – I was trying to get at mm-hmm. before. Are those two different mysteries of consciousness or is it the same thing looked at from a different angle? I would call one a mystery. There's the mystery, um, which is, you know, the the hard problem. Um, and then I would say there's a lot we don't know. And not necessarily everything we don't know um, is a mystery with a capital M. Um, and it's interesting because I think that's what most people assumed the hard problem was. Um, and many people still do. Um, I think most scientists still do. Um, so, and I, you know, I, I was certainly one of those people where we assumed that consciousness um, is analogous to something like a light bulb, where if you don't know anything about electricity and the mechanics of light bulbs, you're in a dark room and you flip a switch and suddenly the room is flooded with light. That seems like a miracle. That seems, you know, like a completely mysterious phenomenon. Um, but once you understand electric currents and, you know, all, all of the science that goes into why this is a phenomenon, um, it's it's no longer mysterious. It's pretty basic science. And I think most of us assumed that consciousness was something like that, that it seems mysterious to us. It seems like it's miraculous thing, um, but that's only because we know so little about the brain and at some point we'll figure it out and then we'll see, oh, it's, you know, it's just like flipping on a light switch and these neurons do their neuron thing in this specific way, and then all of a sudden you have experience. Um, but there are there are many reasons to think that that actually that the, those are not analogous, and that the hard problem of consciousness is is a much deeper mystery than that, um, and which I was referring to as mystery with a capital M. Do you think we'll solve this hard problem? I really don't know. <laughs> I, I I really don't know. I could see it going either way. I could see this just persisting as a mystery until the end of time, at least for, for human beings. Maybe some AI will, <laughs> will figure it out. Um, but no, it, do, it does seem like one of those things that it's hard to imagine how we could. Um, I just know that there are so many things in science like that that seemed that way. Um, and we've made progress. We understand things that we couldn't have even contemplated not that long ago. I mean, it's so we're so young as a species in the scheme of things that um, I, I'm definitely optimistic that at, at, at the very least we can understand a lot more than we do. One last question, just in terms of shaking up our intuitions. You you talk early in the book about plants and whether plants – are conscious. Mm-hmm. Are plants conscious? Is my cucumber <laughs> conscious? Right. So um, I I have no idea if, if plants are conscious. I don't necessarily think that, that they are. Um, and again, I think if, if there's any form of consciousness in a plant, it is nothing like the consciousness we experience. Um, there's no complex thought or, you know, anything remotely like being a human being. Um, but the reason I bring up plants in my book um, is 
more to discuss behavior and how we usually look at behavior as evidence of consciousness. And I think this is one very strong intuition that is interesting to to probe a little bit and to and to shake up. So I actually begin early on in the book I give these two questions that I think are very useful for getting us to really um, look closely and answer for for ourselves um, what we think consciousness is at an intuitive level. And so the first question is, can we see anything on the outside? Is there any behavior that we witness that is conclusive evidence of consciousness of that system? So um, if I go to my friend's house and her cat just died and she's sobbing on the floor, um, that to me that's a reflexive answer. Like, yes, my, my friend crying on the floor, absolutely that's evidence that consciousness is present. Um, and it seems crazy to question that, but I wanted to kind of go at these places where we feel almost 100% sure that we see evidence of consciousness and figure out why why is that and, and is that correct? Um, and so the, the first question is about is there behavior that we can definitely say is evidence of consciousness? The second question is related, but it's a slightly different question, which is um, does consciousness do anything? Is it affecting our behavior? Um, because that's a very another strong intuition. It seems crazy to ask because our reflexive answer is um, yes, absolutely. We need consciousness um, to think about all kinds of things. To that, that they're really the driving force of so much of our that consciousness is the driving force of so much of our behavior. Um, even just planning out my day today. You know, what time do I have to catch a cab to go meet Dan? And all, all of that seems to be driven by consciousness in, in some sense. And what's interesting is when you look at these reflexive answers and intuitions more closely, they actually do start to fall apart. And one of the places, um, as you said, I I bring up behavior in plants, which I learned a lot actually doing research for this book. There's some very interesting and bizarre plant behavior that is close enough to human behavior that it starts to get you to question um, because we assume plants are not conscious. So you see this behavior that's similar enough to human behavior that we would use as evidence of consciousness. Um, in a plant, we assume there's no consciousness. So does does that actually rule out some of these behaviors? Um, plants react to a lot of the same things. We react to touch and light and heat and sound. Um, they are processing all of these cues from the external world um, by processes that are very, very similar to the way our brains process these same types of things. And um, Daniel Chamovitz is um, a scientist. He wrote a book, What a Plant Knows, which I cite a lot of my books. He's done some very fascinating work. But he's actually, um, in his work, he identifies a a gene that is responsible in in plants for determining whether they're in the light or the dark. Um, And it turns out this gene is part of the human DNA Mm. as well. And and has a similar function. I mean, it, it gets more complex with humans. It has to do with circadian rhythms, and um, but it is—it's the same gene that detects light and dark. Um, and the way that electrical signals get passed is um, in plants. Um, ivy, when it needs to change direction and change its rate of growth, when it starts—you know—notices an object nearby that it wants to wrap itself around. Um, there's a, a Susan Samard, I think is how you pronounce her last name. I may have pronounced it incorrectly. Um, she does fascinating work on um, the underground root systems and system in, in forests, so how trees are interconnected and how they 
share carbon and other minerals. Um, and one thing I mentioned in my book, which I find super interesting, is um, that the quote-unquote mother trees can um, notice, um, can distinguish between the trees that um, that are their kin from the other trees in the forest, and they actually deliver more carbon and they deliver um, signals that warn, defense signals that warn of poisonous things in the area, th- things like that, where there's all this communication um, happening through what's called mycorrhizal networks, these fungal networks, um, where the behaviors, when you witness them, seem like the types of behaviors you would need consciousness to perform. Um, so so that's just the beginning in my book. That's just the very beginning of asking these two questions and then beginning with plant behaviors, um, the beginning of this exploration of are our intuitions leading us toward the truth or where are they leading us toward the truth and where are they perhaps um, misleading us? I don't know if we're going to solve the mystery, the hard uh, problem. Definitely not in this podcast. I don't know (laughs) if we're going to solve it in our lifetimes. And I'm not even sure how much it matters at the level of an individual life or mind. But I will say what does matter indisputably is that this feeling of awe that you have evoked for us in this in this conversation and that you do incredibly skillfully in the book mm-hmm. is salutary. You know, it does put you in perspective. It mm-hmm. does take you out of yourself. There's a selflessness in that. So thank you to, to you for that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Before we go, I, I, I always close with the plug zone. So okay. can you plug the book, your, where we can find you on, on, on the internets, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is called Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind. And you can find it at any bookseller. Um, and my website is just AnnikaHarris.com, A-N-N-A-K-A Harris.com. Um, I have some meditation guided meditations for children available on my website and other resources um, related to my book Conscious and also my children's book. Um, and I, I now have all of my guided meditations and lessons for children are now on um, Sam's Waking Up app. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's fun. Always great to see Annika. Um, big thanks again to Annika. Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. Um, first and foremost, thank you to uh, you and everybody at 10% Happier um, for all the work you're doing, it's uh, very appreciated and uh, making a big impact on my life and um, that of many others. So thank you. Um, I I have a fairly well-established uh, practice. I've been uh, meditating for uh, five or six years and um, actually been doing uh, about an hour a day recently, which is kind of a, a new development, and I've definitely um, noticed um some benefits from continuing to kind of um, ramp up and take it further. Um, my question comes in in the fact that I have uh, a baby boy um, due to enter uh, my world here. Uh, actually, his due date is one month from today. So I fully anticipate that to throw a, somewhat of a wrench in my current um, routine. So um, given that I know you have a, a young boy yourself and have uh, maintained a pretty rigorous practice um, through that period of your life. I'm wondering if you have any tips or advice on kind of how to uh, navigate that and how to um, how I can keep uh, meditation um, 
you know, largely for the benefit of my wife and uh, baby boy, um, keep that up, um, you know, expecting it to not look the same or be uh, the same length or uh, time or whatever. But any tips you have on that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations to you and your wife. Having a baby, boy or girl, is awesome. Um, I was very glad to hear what you said at the end, which is that you don't expect it to be to the, your practice to look the same when you have a child. So you're not – sounds to me like you're not overly attached to continuing the same exact practice, one hour a day, same place every day, et cetera, et cetera, because your life's about to change in a big way, and I think you need to be flexible, and I think you need to be in it with your wife – so just going in with an open mind and a sense of flexibility and curiosity, I think is going to be really helpful to you. And I think giving yourself a break that, you know, this is a time in your life where you've done all this work and it's going to pay off. You're going to be less yanked around by your emotions, less, uh, more focused, more, you know, sort of awake and aware for all this amazing stuff and difficult stuff that's going to happen. So let the investment pay off for a minute and don't get so worried um, in, in my view, this is just one person's advice. Don't get so worried on, on rigidly clinging to the way it was before you had the child. So uh, the way I did it was to really just kind of – first of all, I made a lot of mistakes. We can talk about those too. But just just to um, think really strategically about my schedule and to know that and every day is going to be different. Some days I'm not going to be getting enough sleep. Some days I'm going to be – I'm going to have plenty of spare time because the baby's sleeping a lot. And just catch it where you can. I think that kind of having a supple attitude can be really useful. In terms of mistakes, um, by the way, and being being okay, just to say this again, being okay with your maybe days where you only get one or five or ten minutes in, and that's fine. Absolutely fine. You should be calling that a victory. And it may, that, this may last for a long time. The other thing I'd say is I made some mistakes about being rigid, really setting, saying to myself, you know, I'm Mr. Meditation Guy. Now I need to do, I, I decided maybe a half a year or a year into our son's life that I wanted to do two hours a day. And, you know, I, I was flexible about I could get it done anywhere uh, and, and, and in any time length I wanted and I was often just doing it in the back seats of taxi cabs or in airplanes as I traveled or in my office. But I do think it was too rigid, and I it's created it created some stress with my wife, and she was in the right on this one. Um, and so over time, I got much better at making it so that she wasn't even aware. I, I just didn't meditate much at home, and certainly not if there was something that needed to be done. But then, then I eventually cut just cut back to an hour. And so now I don't. She, I don't think she ever really notices that I'm meditating because it all just happens when our son's off at school or or when I'm on traveling or I'm at the office, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it just comes down to flexibility and giving yourself a break. You've done all this good work. I can imagine you might be attached on some level to continuing with the practice since you're getting so much out of it. But understanding that life, you know, is uh, as you see on your meditation cushion always changing, and you got to roll with it. So congratulations and good luck going forward. Here's voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. My name's Julia. First, thanks so much for your your book, your first book, and your podcast and app. I confess I haven't gotten to the second book yet, but uh, I just started using the app, and 
I found myself wondering, um, and I know that that's doubt, but I'm wondering, what's a soft mental note? How do I know I'm not doing a hard mental note or or yelling at myself, um, in, 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 <laughs> out, 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 and not, you know, in, out, softly? How do I know what's loud and what's soft? Thanks. That's such a great question. I've struggled with this for years. So I'll give you my answer, not as not from the mountaintop, like somebody who's mastered this, but as you know, uh, somebody who's in the trenches with you as a rank and file meditator. Uh, so just for the uninitiated, she's talking about the soft mental note. Mental noting is a tried and true technique in the meditation world, uh, which is the skillful use of thinking to connect you to your direct experience. So. If you're meditating on your breath, you can use a soft mental note of in on the in-breath or rising, rising as, as you feel your belly rising and then falling, falling as you feel it falling or in and out if you're more focused on the, um, the nostrils. You can also use this in a more open awareness uh, meditation where you're not so much focused on one thing, but you're just noting whatever arises, so hearing, seeing, if you're seeing lights behind your eyes or, or you've got some mental imagery, uh, pressure, burning, twisting, itching, just little notes that connect you to, to the raw data of your, of your experience. And by the way, you can also note thinking. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm thinking or anger or whatever. So it's incredibly useful for me because my baseline powers of concentration aren't that strong. So instead of just feeling the breath with no notes, uh, where in which, uh, you know, that I can often get very lost if I'm doing that. If I use the, the notes, I can stay with it longer, I've noticed for myself. But your question was the direction, the, the instruction is often use a soft mental note rather than a hard mental note. This is definitely art, not science. And you're really just going to have to probe this for yourself. But the, the phrase that's often used is, is like a whisper in the mind. So you're not screaming in your mind as you, you screamed using your outside voice. In, in, in. You're not screaming into yourself like a uh, – or in and out or rising, rising, falling, falling to yourself like a drill sergeant. You really just want to keep it, the volume low. And I can't – you know, th- there's there's no dial here, so I can't give you specific instructions, but you can see for yourself, just through your own experience, what is, is how loud is this in my mind? Am I, am I really, is it very soft and the volume is low enough so that I'm more focused on the feeling of the breath than I am on the volume of the note? Another thing that Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the primary teachers on the app, talks about a lot is the tone of the note. This is, this is very much related to what we're talking about right now. Is there sort of aggression, anger, self-flagellation in the note? Like uh, you're, you've noticed you've become distracted and you're making a mental note of thinking, thinking, but you're doing so in a way like thinking, oh my God, you're such an idiot. I can't believe you were thinking again. By the way, that's going to happen, but then you might notice maybe you would use the note judging, judging, Everything can be co-opted. Everything can be included. But ultimately, you do want to get to a point where the noting 
has a gentle, non-judgmental feel to it. Like I said, you will at times, I'll just speak for myself, inevitably, even after all these years of meditation, lapse into self-judgment. But that's just another thing to notice. And then you and then you can start noting in a way that's softer and less judgmental. As I've said a million times before, this is like a golf game with a million mulligans. It's all about starting again and again and again. So thank you for that question. You've really honed in on an important thing. Thank you to everybody who's listening. I really appreciate it. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review or, uh, or talk about us on social media or rate us. This all really helps. It, it uh, boosts our visibility so we can get more listeners and keep doing this thing that we so enjoy. And speaking of the we, big thanks to the folks who produce this show, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston. Mike's on the boards today. Mike, kudos to you. Uh, and we'll see you next Wednesday with another show. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.